Welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here, a podcast about climate change hosted by the students at the Washington University in St. Louis Climate Change Program. Sajal Rajamani, and I'm a junior here at WashU, and I'm majoring in environmental biology and minoring in psychology and legal studies. My name is Laura Briggs. I'm a sophomore here at WashU. I'm a double major in environmental analysis and political science. In this episode, we'll be talking about fast fashion and its influence on climate change. The references for what we'll be discussing are included in our show notes, which are on our website, climatechange.wustle.edu. For an in-depth look at our research process and combating climate myths and disinformation, check out our first episode on climate literacy. This podcast episode accompanies our past climate conversation event on fashion and climate change. As a quick side note, Climate Conversations are a program of the WashU Climate Change Program, where we highlight key issues in climate change and invite members of the WashU community to come together for learning and discussion. Today, we'll be taking a deep dive into fast fashion specifically, and joining us later in the episode will be Professor Mary Rupert Strescu and Professor Jennifer Ingram, who are two professors at the Sam Fox School who study sustainable fashion design. If you didn't attend our climate conversation, welcome. If you came to our climate conversation, welcome back. You can follow us on Instagram at WashUCCP or visit our website, climatechange.wustle.edu, to stay up to date with WashU Climate Change Program's events and resources. So, Sejal, when you hear the phrase fast fashion, what comes to your mind? So, to me, what comes to mind is consumerism, the demand for really trendy clothing at a really fast pace. And it's usually very cheap clothing, at least that's how I see it. Like H&M, Zara, Shein, all those companies, that's what I think of when I think fast fashion. Just cheap, fast clothing that keeps up to date with the trends. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like another hallmark is that it usually doesn't last. Like it's usually not the best quality. I remember recently I was going to buy a shirt and it was like a pretty decent price. It was like $30. But I found that the care instructions were really hard to care for. And when I was talking to the cashier, she was like, yeah, I never followed the care instructions. It's okay if I just get rid of this piece of clothing like within a month. And I think that's sort of the fast fashion mentality of like clothes are disposable. You can wear it for a month and it'll fall apart and it's fine because you'll just get something else that's pretty cheap. I think that fast fashion, I think you definitely got it right when you said like there's a demand for trendy clothes at a very cheap price point. It's a fashion business model about making clothes cheaply and quickly. And the point is to constantly stay up to date on what the current trends are. And so a typical fashion retailer has maybe like two or four times a year when they release a clothing line that's a season. So maybe like a fall winter season or a spring summer season. But in contrast, a fast fashion retailer is releasing new seasons every month or every week, sometimes new releases every day. And you definitely pointed to a couple of these companies like H&M, Forever 21, Zara, Shein. Those are really the big ones. And in order to be constantly releasing clothes quickly and have the clothes remain affordable, fast fashion companies often use really cheap materials and cheap labor, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. Fast fashion companies are satisfying our demand for cheap, trendy clothing. So I shared a little bit about my past fast fashion purchases. I don't know if you have any particular examples. Yeah, so I think I actually really try to stay away from fast fashion. One of the things that I do these days, I try to buy all of my clothes secondhand, but even when buying secondhand, a lot of times there will be purchases or like clothing items from fast fashion stores in those secondhand stores. And so I think a lot of my fast fashion, it comes from people getting rid of clothing so fast. And then I also buy into that through secondhand purchases of fast fashion clothing items. So I guess I'm not really doing it directly, but it's still part of that cycle. So, and I think generally you just do it for me. It's, it's fast. 
like fast fashion. You want something now and it's like consumerism and here in America we always want things as fast as possible. That's like my experience with fast fashion. I didn't really do a lot of fast fashion shopping before I started buying secondhand clothes. I definitely agree. I think that there's this demand for like having the newest thing now. Uh, and I know we're going to talk a bit later about buying fast fashion secondhand and how a lot of those garments just don't really last that long so it can be harder and harder to buy secondhand. I mean we've already sort of hinted at this but fast fashion is incredibly unsustainable and it's a big contributor to global climate change. There was a report from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation which is an organization that promotes a circular economy. They found that the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of annual global carbon emissions which is more than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. So in this episode we'll mostly be focused on fast fashion before and after after it actually is in stores. And we're going to structure this sort of like a life cycle assessment, which is basically looking at the environmental impacts of a product throughout its entire existence, from the raw materials used in the product to how people dispose of it, so beginning to end. And instead of talking about a specific product, we'll be talking more about the fast fashion industry in general. So let's start at the very beginning of the fast fashion process, which is sourcing the fabric. Almost all fast fashion garments are completely or partially made from synthetic fibers, most of which come from fossil fuels. Some well-known synthetic fibers include polyester, acrylic, nylon, and another notable example is vegan leather, which is a fabric called polyurethane. All of those plastics are made from petroleum. The World Economic Forum estimates petroleum to be in 60% of garments. And not only are these synthetic fibers using fossil fuels, which means all the environmentally damaging extraction methods used to get fossil fuels from the earth, but these plastic fibers turn into microplastics at the end of their lives. But we'll talk a little bit more about microplastics later. A review of environmental impacts published in Nature, which is a scientific journal, states that carbon dioxide extraction and energy use is highest in the creation of fibers. While all fibers are energy intensive, fabrics derived from petroleum released more emissions at this stage since they are made from fossil fuels. And additionally, the manufacturing location also matters. Lots of fast fashion clothing is manufactured in China, which often means it's reliant on coal for energy, which is also emissions intensive. But in addition to carbon emissions, which is sort of what we think about in terms of global climate change, there's still lots of other environmental problems with fast fashion beyond that. So cotton, for example, is responsible for fewer emissions than polyester. It uses enormous amounts of land and water. So going back to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, they claim that the fashion industry uses 93 billion cubic meters of water annually, which could meet the consumption needs of 5 million people. And the worst actor in this is cotton. Uh, so per the Nature Review that we mentioned earlier, cotton is actually the most water-intensive fiber used in fashion. The global nature of our economy worsens water usage as well, as foreign demand, so from countries like the U.S., can further stress water supply in manufacturing countries that might be more water-scarce. The processing and dyeing process is also water-intensive and polluting, with the Nature Review estimating that fashion is responsible for around 20% of global industrial water pollution. Yeah, so now let's talk a little bit more about chemicals as they relate to fibers and clothing items, since they're everywhere in fast fashion products. A study from H&M and Ikea that tested disposed cotton-based textiles found carcinogens and endocrine disruptors, and most of these chemicals came from clothing dyes. So full disclosure here, we had a little bit of trouble locating that original study, but we're linking a Harper's Bazaar article in our show notes that discusses it. And if we locate the original study, we'll add it to the show notes later. But according to the 2020 Fashion Revolution Transparency Index, half of the 250 largest global fashion brands don't have a restricted substance list. And a restricted substance list is essentially a list of chemicals that companies refuse to use or they can be compiled by organizations to make companies aware of banned chemicals in particular markets. 
Of these same 250 largest global fashion brands, though, only a quarter have committed to eliminating hazardous chemicals from their supply chain by a certain time. In order for fast fashion clothes to be so cheap, not only do those material costs need to be low, but the labor costs are also low. That means that the people who are making your clothes are paid very little and usually face poor working conditions. Fast fashion companies are notorious especially for using sweatshops that pay their workers next to nothing, make them work long hours, and even use child labor. And sometimes it can be hard to look at a garment and compute mentally like what it should cost between the materials and the labor costs. For me personally, there's an example that really stands out between the disparity of what a garment is priced at and what it really should actually cost when you think about the labor. And that's with crochet. So I personally crochet and crochet, unlike knitting, can't be made by a machine. You can use a knitting machine to get a similar look to some crochet items, but there are other stitches that have to be made by hand. So for example, the really common granny square motif. And there was some controversy recently recently about a crocheted top being sold at Target at around $25 and people on TikTok were calling out the brand and explaining that this type of crochet has to be made by hand and it takes high levels of skill and a lot of time. So that's not even including like the materials cost. So it's almost certain that whoever crocheted this top was really, really underpaid. We'll be attaching some of the coverage on the TikTok backlash in the show notes if you're interested. So countries without strict labor protections are attractive for fast fashion companies because they're constantly looking to cut costs. So there's a carbon footprint associated with moving your clothes from Bangladesh, for example, to your local mall in the United States. So now your clothes, with all of their petroleum and chemicals, have made it to your local mall. When we come back, we'll talk about what happens once clothes reach the consumer. Plus, stick around when we discuss how to make fast fashion more sustainable and talk with Professor Mary Rupert Storescu and Professor Jennifer Ingram about the future of fashion. We'll be right back. Okay, so you've gone to your local mall, you've bought some new clothes. Now what? Well, one of the many problems with fast fashion is that these cheap clothes aren't built to last. That's a part of the business model. The appeal of fast fashion is that you can get trendy clothes quickly, and trends don't last for that long. So why should fast fashion companies spend more money to create durable clothes? Now, here's where it's in the hands of the consumer a little bit. If you wash your clothes with hot water, which, by the way, isn't the most climate-friendly option, your clothes will break down faster. And that's why some fashion brands encourage you to wash with cold water for this reason. But you have to wash your clothes. So with any type of washing, you're going to have a problem with microplastic pollution. As it said in the Nature article that we referenced before, fashion is responsible for around 35% of oceanic primary microplastic pollution. Most of these microplastics come from plastic-based fabrics, which are extremely common in fast fashion. People also tend not to hold on to their clothes for very long, and this is worsened by trendy, poor-quality, fast fashion garments. A McKinsey analysis found that between 2000 and 2014, the number of garments purchased per capita increased by about 60%. But at the same time, people only kept their clothes for about half as long, and they keep cheap clothes for the shortest amount of time. Some fast fashion brands have promoted recycling initiatives to help reduce plastic waste, but honestly, most of this doesn't go to new clothes. In 2015, only 15% of post-consumer textile waste was recycled, and under 1% was recycled for a similar purpose, such as making new clothes. But the amount of clothing that can be recycled or repurposed is shrinking, as the poor quality fast fashion fabrics are often not durable enough to be recycled. And now we've reached the end of the garment's life, with only two real choices. It's either landfill or incineration, and both are pretty bad for the environment. Fabrics take hundreds of years to decompose in a landfill, potentially leaking toxins into the soil and groundwater in the meantime. 
In terms of incineration, burning a fabric made of petrochemicals releases carbon dioxide, which is one of the huge drivers of climate change, and it also releases a lot of other pollutants. By walking through this life cycle assessment, we can see that fast fashion is environmentally damaging at just about every stage. And now to talk a little bit more about those damages and what we as consumers can do, we'll be joined by Professor Jennifer Ingram, Senior Lecturer at the WashU Sam Fox School of Design, and Professor Mary Rupert Strescu, Associate Professor and Fashion Design Area Coordinator, also at the WashU Sam Fox School of Design. Jennifer Ingram. I teach in the fashion design department. I'm a senior lecturer. The courses that I typically teach include intro to fashion design, textile design, and three-dimensional fashion design and some of the pattern making courses. My research focuses mainly on reviewing the textiles that are used in small firms and how they approach using environmental friendly, sustainable textile fibers. And uh, I'm Mary Rupert Strowescu, and I'm in the fashion design area as well. I'm also the area coordinator, and I teach courses related to fashion design as well as fashion promotion and topics related to fashion history. And my research has kind of three prongs. I research creativity and the kind of social psychological impact of uh, clothing on people in society, but then also wearable electronics for health and well-being, textile-based sensing systems. And then the topic of this interview is my work with sustainable textiles and the way that I approach sustainability in fashion design is by attacking the topic of textile waste. So I look to reduce waste and these areas overlap because my creativity research has really helped to inform ways of thinking for innovation. So, you know, everything that I do is all interrelated anyway. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So I think let's start with Jennifer. If you could talk a bit more about some of your research, especially you said that you work in small firms and like environmental impact. If you could share a bit more about that, like sort of environmentally friendly fashion. I found that when I was trying to see how brands are incorporating sustainable textiles, what that really means and how they're producing or products with sustainable textiles, I found that a lot of the research had information about the larger brand. And many of the brands may have stated what materials they're using, but the materials are either privately owned by them or exclusive to get for them. So then I started to research more and look at some of the smaller firms and see by definition what I looked at environmentally sustainable fibers to be as either fibers that are biodegradable or they're fibers that are technology recyclable or they're made with renewable materials, renewable fibers. So in that process, I started to look up different brands that are actually incorporating those materials in their product and found like a list of small brands that were actually producing product with these materials. So within that, I wanted to research more to find out how they're making it happen for their business because in a lot of the research, it says that it's a major challenge for designers to incorporate sustainable textiles due to the cost, due to the limited variety of product. And so within that, I went further to start to research independent designers 
and because they are the decision makers for the brand, where if you're in a larger corporation, it's not really you that's making the sole decision for choosing the fabrics. Normally it's a lot of stakeholders that make that decision. But for a smaller brand, they're able to make the choice and the decision to purchase the environmentally sustainable fibers or the eco-friendly fibers. So I just wanted to understand what their mindset is and what drives them to choose these fibers. And even when they're choosing these fibers, how do they go about the process? Just because I found that that's something that our students naturally want to do. And if there's ways that we can continually help them to do that as they're designing, or even their alumni that are trying to do it, if they have that power at whatever company they're working for, and if we can help and aid in that process, that's kind of the focus of the research. How do you think that we can get these larger fast fashion brands to sort of view environmental fabrics as important and not just in like the greenwashing sense? I think it may be a matter of understanding realistically what the company's approach to being eco-friendly or using environmentally sustainable materials if it is that they are trying to use like recycled polyester and they want to continue to do one of those like buyback programs where they take their materials back and use those to create new pieces, maybe that could be an approach. That could be probably, I would say for a fast fashion company, maybe the easiest approach, but then it will require the infrastructure for that company to be able to break down those materials to create new pieces which may require a whole nother business in it within itself and may change their outcome on what the economic profit may be if you have to bring in extra steps. I mean, I think there are some larger brands that are trying to improve the materials that they are using. But well, I, even like H&M, they've got their fiber recycling pod that they have as a showpiece. But like you said, maybe it's a, a greenwashing thing because that's just a small, small part of their business. Mm -hmm. I think many companies are, the larger companies like an H&M or Zara or whatever are trying to incorporate more. But I just think that the scale in which they need the materials is probably not the scale at which these sustainable materials are being produced at. Either. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's which, right. Yeah, yeah. That the is the availability. Yeah. You're, you, it's the supply and demand. And I think that takes away from like, if it is an organic cotton to, if all of us, all of these brands went to only using organic cottons, we would have to produce less. It would not be any way for us to produce at the amount of units that companies currently produce. So Right. Yeah. You know, I was talking with Brett Schnitzker of Stars Designs the other day, and he was just uh, returning from a trip where he was speaking with Dillard's mm -hmm. and about the impact of the pandemic on their merchandise assortment and their whole approach to manufacturing. Now, I know that we're focusing on fast fashion, but really this phenomenon, everything that we're saying is related to fashion in general. Because, I mean, even the general fashion model has been to produce and produce and produce and buy and buy and buy. I don't know if you've ever been into a Dillard store, but traditionally you go into that store and there's so much merchandise. It's like you're overwhelmed by how much is there. And what they end up doing is they buy so much knowing that they're going to uh, discount. 
So they, when they figure out their math, they've got maybe 20% of the merchandise they sell at top dollar and then 20% off, 30% off, 50% off. And what they're shifting to now, thanks to big data, where they can better understand what past consumer behavior has been and what the consumer wants is to just write manufacturing. So instead of manufacturing 20,000 pieces, knowing that you're gonna end up trashing at least 10% of those, they'll do 10% less manufacturing because they're gonna sell them smarter. So they won't have to discount them. There won't be so many pieces to throw away. And I think that's a mentality mind shift that from a supply chain and assortment planning and all of that standpoint that is independent actually of design, mm-hmm. it's more on the production side, but if they can production and selling, but if they can produce smarter and sell smarter, then there will be fewer clothes in the waste stream. Since you're talking about like consuming less as a whole and how that needs to be a mindset change along those same lines, do you think that there can be such a thing? as sustainable fast fashion in this sense? Is it possible to balance the affordability and the sustainability? I think so. And I say that because I think you would have to change the mindset of consuming a lot as a consumer, as well as the designer would have to change the mindset of producing a lot. I think that there could be a way When you say fast fashion, that changes it a little bit just because of the number of units that are being produced and the quick turnaround. But I think that if... And the low price. And the low price. What gets me in in this whole mix is people don't understand how much time and energy and expertise goes into each individual garment. And the way that we can have that $3 t-shirt or that $12 pant is because of the massive quantities that are produced because economies of scale make the individual pieces be less expensive. So it's, we're going to have to get to, like you said, Jennifer, to change the consumer mindset that they're willing to not buy a pair of pants every three weeks at $12, but maybe buy a pair of pants every six weeks at $24, or maybe every month or every two months at the accumulated higher price of that. I'm not really sure that fast fashion as we know of it today being cheap is going to be, and I know what, you know, your term affordable is a really interesting one because I don't know, I'm maybe of a different time, but my mom used to say, you have to be rich to buy cheap because when you buy cheap, things go bad. They get destroyed quickly. So you think you're getting off great because you only paid $20 for that sweater, but in three washings, it's already got holes in it, so you can't wear it. But if you paid $40 for a sweater that you were able to wear for two years, the cost per wear is much lower. If it works out that way, because there are products that are cheaper, that tend to be made in high quality and do still last. Mm-hmm. And and you, you it's all in the mind of what you consider affordable and quality. That was a great answer. I do have a follow-up question actually along those lines about having to be rich to buy cheap because there are some people who can't buy the higher quality items like at that price point because you have to be able to save up for those items or in the moment they don't have the ability to do that. And so I'm just curious if you guys have thought about that issue of people who might not be able to buy the $50 sweater because they don't have that money all at the same time. And so they have to buy something cheaper that might be of lower quality. I think nowadays, 
you can still find that higher quality, even in thrift store shopping. I know that many people have resorted to that. You can still find high quality products that still can be affordable. So it may mean that it has to be either used or, you know, secondhand or, you know, in some way for those, for everybody to be able to afford a version of what is considered the higher quality. Yeah, I think maybe it goes back to changing the consumer mindset because we are so used to immediate gratification. You know, we want to know what something is. We just Google it and we've got it right there. It used not to always be that way. And if we used to be, if you wanted to have a nice dress for the holidays, you saved a little every month and then you bought that expensive dress. Now we want to have a nice dress today and we want to go out today with what we've got in our pocket and we want to just buy it. So the fastness of being able to have today what we want with what we've got in our pocket and not do the saving and not do the planning and not see that long-term benefit I just don't think that's going to be able to be good for the environment. I I just think if the consumers continue to demand low cost and immediate change, then the only way to do it is through economies of scale and staying with the way we've got. So we really kind of do need to pull back from our, and it's hard. And I don't know if the consumers are going to be able to do that. I'm, I'm myself in the same boat. One of, one of the dresses that I have on is a $40 dress from Target. And I just love the fact that I was able to get a dress from Target for $40 and I didn't even need it that day, but I had to have it because <laughs> I saw it, you know? <laughs> so it's a, you know what they call those, they kind of call them wicked problems mm-hmm. where you're trying to solve one problem and you create another problem on the other side. I do think though, one site that I like to recommend is good on you. They tend to, from what I remember, but it used to be where you could type in a certain type of sustainability focus, whether it is that you wanted to purchase natural materials or you want to purchase recycled materials or whatever it might be. And then they would list brands and rate them on how sustainable they are from an environmental standpoint Mm -hmm. and some social standpoint. And then you as the consumer could choose the price range of what you're willing to pay because yes, they have organic products on there and there are some that range to over $300. And then there are some that you could actually get pieces for 50 bucks. So it just depends on what your price point is and what you're willing to spend within that range of whatever specific trade-off you want for environmental sustainability. So one of the things that you brought up, and, and you brought up a couple of different ideas that I think we want to revisit, but one of them was this idea of textile waste. So if you buy the cheap sweater, maybe after three washes, it gets holes in it. And so, of course, we're consuming more clothes, so that's generating more waste. And then the other problem of a lot of these fast fashion garments is that they're not really made to last. They're not really made with quality materials. And so one thing that we've sort of been finding in our research is that a lot of those textiles, beyond having things like microplastics, which are just really bad for the environment, they can't really be repurposed in the same way that more durable fabrics can be. And so Mary, if you would like to speak a bit about like your research in textile repurposing, and then maybe like how can we take some of those ideas and think about how we can apply them to fast fashion. 
Well, when I was thinking about ways of repurposing textiles or upcycling, taking something that has low value and turning it into something of a, a higher value, I did the literature and there are a lot of people taking fibers and decomposing clothing down to the fiber stage and then upcycling it from that way, making new yarns. That does require though, having a hundred percent of something. So hundred percent cotton or hundred percent polyester. Because when you start working with blends, then the way you treat it after to make the new fiber is a lot more complex. But if you know the fiber content, they can do that. But to me, that also negates the energy, the dyes, all the work that it took to get the fabric to be the way it was in the garment where it was. I've been able to kind of develop as a, a research stream is to break down the textile to a level that it's no longer recognizable with its defects like you were saying, so if it's got a hole or if it's gotten discolored or things like that. And I found that half inch strips or half inch squares, when you get things down to that level, you don't notice the pilling, you don't notice the defects and almost the defects become a part of the beautiful aesthetic of it. And also thinking about in the textile industry, when you use a pattern to cut out on yardage, the excess area around the pattern piece, like say where your neck is, it curves down. So that little curved piece is cut out and then that's thrown away. So that's called cutting room waste. So we were trying to think of a way that we wouldn't generate cutting room waste. We could even use cutting room waste as well as discarded clothing waste to create new clothes because we didn't want to lose the fun part of fashion because fashion and newness, it, it makes us feel good. It's a part of the way that we express ourselves. And, and so I, I hope that with all the sustainability talk that we don't just lose that. <laughs> and so we have this system that I patented with and developed it with some of my former students that we call Reclaim, where we lay out textiles within the shape of the pattern piece and actually do the textile design, the color, the pattern and everything as you're laying it out inside of the shape. And then you put it on a biodegradable substrate that then is stitched together and washed. And so you have a completely new fabric from it. And that has been really eye-opening in the possibilities that are able to be done there, but I'm still not quite satisfied because I don't feel like it's 100% circular. In the circular economy, you want to keep something in the use cycle until it doesn't exist anymore. So for example, nylon is a fiber that is circular in the carpet industry. Carpets made with nylon six can be taken to a recycling center. They melt them down and they make new carpets with it. So it always stays within that cycle. So my next push for my research is to think of ways of having a system, like Jennifer had mentioned, people could give the clothes back and then they would come back into the process and be redesigned up into something else. Or even there's a lot of, Christy Nimaki does a lot of work in the idea of building a relationship with your clothing. And one way to do that is by making your clothing modular or you have an interaction with it. So say if you have a garment that you can put a collar on one day and take the collar off the next day or change it to shorts or longer pants. So it makes it more versatile and stays in the use cycle longer. So that's kind of one of my challenges coming up that I want to try to address with the clothes that are made with Reclaim. And we're also trying to prove that the cost model for this, because laying down each individual piece does seem to be taking a lot of time. So my current research is analyzing each piece individually, how long it takes to make it so we can do a cost analysis to try to convince an industry person, someone with a fashion 
company that manufactures. I would love to get H&M involved in it or something that would want to try my system at a larger scale. So I, another idea that I wanted to bring up that you touched on earlier was about when you're talking about like a $3 t-shirt, there's no way a t-shirt should be $3, right? Like the human labor costs, the fabric costs, the manufacturing costs are all sort of artificially low. So when we're talking about climate change and sustainability as well, we often talk about like externalities. So in terms of climate change, like big polluters aren't necessarily paying for all the consequences of carbon emissions or of pollution or things like that. And it seems like we really have this problem, especially in fashion in general, but especially with fast fashion, where everything is artificially cheap. So it would be great if you could speak a bit more on how we've come to expect that garments are going to be very cheap. And can we really have cheap clothes and also ensure that we try and minimize those externalities and that we're paying fair wages to garment makers and things like that, that like we really should be paying? I think naturally with I call it a highly competitive industry, meaning Mm -hmm. there are so many t-shirts to choose from. There are so many jackets to shoot. It's oversaturated. With oversaturation, you're always going to have competition. Mm -hmm. And so within the business of that, the way that it works is that you have to figure out what is your competitive advantage as a brand. Some brands are going to choose the high road and they go, okay, well, we're going to offer more higher quality, or there's a story behind it that allows them to tack on this cost. There's a name behind it that allows them to tack on the cost. And it doesn't necessarily always mean that they're even paying more for the product to be produced. I will say that as well. I definitely do think that from what I have seen, fair trade is more of the route that more companies should go to try to make sure that there is a mutual agreement between the producers and the brands and that they're being paid fair wages. That's what I've heard so far is more of the route to go if you are trying to make sure that you're covering that aspect of the business. So I agree with everything that Jennifer said. I do want to say though, that a lot of times a company will take a loss on a t-shirt just to get the customer into the store, get them to buy something, get them to linger longer. So maybe they'll want to buy a higher price item and then kind of just fold that into, if you will, like an advertising cost or something. So maybe the t-shirt costs more to get into the store but they're willing to take a loss on it because they're doing it intentionally for other marketing reasons. So every $3 t-shirt, maybe they produce 10,000 of those t-shirts and they actually cost $3 to produce and they sold 8,000 of them at $30. So that put a lot of money in their pocket and now they can afford to take that other 2,000 and sell them for $3 just so people feel good about the brand and want to be in the store. So there's a whole game that happens in the whole merchandising and planning and buying and producing a thing that can make it seem like, oh my gosh, how can they do a $3 shirt? But it's not always just that. So that's on the one hand, that point that I wanted to make. But on the other hand, like Jennifer said, so much of pricing is branding and image and the actual cost of manufacturing something that's sold in H&M might be the same manufacturing cost if it was sold at Nike, but because it's Nike, it's got like 30 bucks more on it (laughs) just because of the branding. I do wish there was a way that companies could take ownership of, I don't want to say it in this way, more of 
not saying ownership of their manufacturers, but a way that they, I feel because it's an out for some companies, the manufacturer may be an outside source and they're not actually going through the motions of what the manufacturer, it's a detached. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't understand. They what, don't understand yeah. all that goes into it. Yeah. I, yeah. I say this only from my experience of being an independent mm-hmm. designer. I actually realize how much I'm cheated by being the person making it. Making it definitely should be much more valued. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's where I think the production amount has to be reduced and there has to be a higher price to everything that is being made. To allow for more exclusivity. And then I think with exclusivity, the customer is willing to pay more because they can't find it everywhere. And there's not as many companies to choose from to purchase those things. So I think that's just the challenge with the whole business model of fashion is figuring out how do we get the customer to value the product at a higher price. And be willing to save up. And (laughs) willing to buy it at a higher Um, price. But I think too, the whole idea of supply chain transparency and having you be able to trace the path of the garment, how it got to you and what the steps were. I think that's going to naturally make people have to stand up and pay attention to how much they're paying their employees and what kind of working conditions they have and everything. Because if the consumer cares and the consumer sees that and the consumer sees things they don't like, that's what's going to change. It's going to have to hit the company's bottom line to make them want to change something. I looked at Reformation's website when I was doing research and just trying to find different companies and how they approach sustainability. And I had found they list all their vendors, literally where they manufacture, where they get materials. They actually list names and addresses, which is very, that rare. is never done in very industry. Rare. So yeah, it's, it's like you want to keep, it's like your secret sauce. Yes. You know? <laughs> so I do feel that, yes, some of that transparency will be a great help for pushing brands to be accountable for where they're producing, what they're willing to pay, what they're paying to produce the product. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's how much they pay, but also the length of the time they make them work and the working conditions, mm-hmm. if they have decent lunchrooms and breaks and childcare and healthcare and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which I mean, yes, we live in a privileged society where we expect all of those things and some places where wages are lower there that's not like the status quo so it's also going to be a shift of getting the manufacturers in those countries into the mindset that these are values that they need to exhibit so that people will want to stay and work for them and their brands will be bought and it's kind of like a learning curve in some ways and they need to be incentivized because if they've been able to hire people to work 60 hour weeks and not provide any health care and no child care and everything has been working for them. They've been making money. Why would they change? Thanks once again to Professor Jennifer Ingram and Professor Mary Rupert Strescu for that amazing interview. We wanted to talk a little bit more about what we can do as individual consumers So there's the three R's, which is reduce, reuse, recycle. And that's something that applies to lots of different environmental areas, but especially to fashion. And these go in order based on environmental benefits. So it's better to reduce than to reuse and better to reuse than to recycle. So when we think about reduction, the first R, reducing means just buying fewer clothes, period. 
the best thing that you can do is wear the clothes you already have. And if you're buying new clothes, try not to think about current trends. Consider how long you intend to keep the garment. If it's affordable from you, try and buy from sustainable or slow fashion brands that use fewer chemicals, have better labor conditions, and make more durable clothes. It's important for us to note that one of the things that's so appealing about fast fashion and one of the larger moral dilemmas is that it's usually one of the cheapest clothing options. Better quality garments may be inaccessible and fast fashion may make the most economic sense for some people. And if that's the case, if you buy from fast fashion, think about what styles will last beyond trends and be sure to take good care of your clothes. I also personally like the website Good On You, which Jennifer and Mary mentioned. It's an organization that rates fashion brands based on their environmental impacts as well as human and animal rights. And like Jennifer and Mary, we found this to be a really interesting resource. And there aren't any fast fashion brands that have a good score per se, but you can become more informed before you shop. And there's definitely some fast fashion brands like Zara and H&M that have promoted sustainable collections, but often these are examples of greenwashing. They use labels that sound eco-friendly, but don't really have a hard and fast definition. A sustainable slow fashion brand is better for the environment than a sustainable fast fashion line if that's accessible for you. And it's also worth noting that within sustainability, not all sustainable goods are created equal. And so earlier we brought up vegan leather and how it's made from polyurethane. Even though it's vegan and perhaps better through the environment than animal leather, it's still made of plastic. It still has that microplastic pollution problem. On the other hand, there are plant-based leather alternatives like pineapple leather and cactus leather that are more sustainable. And so thinking about the word sustainable has a lot of potential definitions. It doesn't really have like a hard and fast rule of like, this is what sustainability is. And to label your garments as sustainable, it has to be this specific thing. Because of that, it's important to sort of distinguish between like what's saying it's sustainable and what actually might be like the most sustainable. The next R on the list past reduce is reuse. And that's the next best thing to do with your garments as well. That usually means buying clothes secondhand and thrifting is great for the environment because it gives clothes a second life and that's usually also a more affordable option too. But when thrifting, keep in mind the same considerations as buying new clothes. Think about how long you'll own the garment, how you can wear it, and how it'll last beyond just the current trends. If you have old clothes that you aren't wearing but are still in relatively good condition, consider donating them instead of throwing them away because this also gives clothes a better chance at having a second life. Beyond reducing and beyond reusing is recycling. Uh, and so this is some form of repurposing old clothes, like maybe making a tote bag from a t-shirt. So like we mentioned before, unfortunately, these poor quality fast fashion fabrics might not really be that great for recycling. But if your fabric is good enough quality, you can upcycle these fabrics and make them into something new. And on a larger scale, we can call for corporations to go beyond marketing and make real commitments to reduce carbon emissions and chemical and petroleum use, as well as pay their employees living wages. While the demand for fast fashion feeds the industry and increased consumption leads to more production, it's important to push for change on the industrial level, too because that's really where we can make a difference. So this concludes our episode on fast fashion. Thank you once again, Professor Jennifer Ingram and Professor Mary Roberts Rescue. And thank you all for listening to It's Getting Hot in Here. This episode was written by Lara Briggs, Sejal Rajamani, and Julian McCall, and edited by Lara Briggs. Special thanks to the staff at the Harvey Media Center at WashU for recording assistance. This podcast is produced by the Washington University Climate Change Program. Stay up to date with the WashU Climate Change Program's events and new podcast episodes by visiting our website, climatechange.wistle.edu. That's climatechange.wistle.edu. .wustl.edu or following us on Instagram at washuccp.